Welcome to the Fire These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century from the periphery. This podcast is ad-free and accessible to everyone thanks to the generous donations of Patreon supporters on patreon.com slash times. For as little as $5 a month or $50 a year, you can help keep this podcast independent that way. The Fire These Times is named after the James Baldwin book, The Fire Next Time, and the music is by Ibrahim Youssef. Thank you for listening and take care. Asexuality is the lack of sexual attraction to others or low or absent interest in or desire for sexual activity. Now, I just read the Wikipedia definition for those of you who may not know because this isn't a conversation about asexuals or a conversation about allosexuals, or rather, it's not just about either. Asexuality says a lot about non-asexuals or allosexuals who are, statistically speaking, probably most people and very likely most of you listening. So I wanted to talk to Angela Chen about her book, Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex, which I highly recommend. And as I am notoriously crap at explaining why I like the books I like, I'm going to read a paragraph written by Sarah Nielsen for them.us, so them.us. Quote, The crux of society's difficulty with accepting asexuality is, Chen argues, because compulsory sexuality is ingrained in societal narratives about mental and physical health, politics and liberation, and interpersonal relationships. Compulsory sexuality posits that sex is a primal human need, ties sex to maturity, and places sex in relationship hierarchies. Even in the queer community, though we hate to be over-sexualized by the straits, we often sexualize ourselves and each other. And while queer sex is indeed liberating for allosexuals, or those that do experience sexual attraction, so is the ability not to have sex. Chen argues, through a fantastic blend of nuanced and clear-eyed reporting, research, and personal reflection, that true liberation requires the dismantling of compulsory sexuality, end quote. Uh, Alright, that's it for me, folks. As always, thank you for listening, and take care. Angela. I'm the author of ACE. I am also my other life a science and tech journalist. I'm a senior editor at Wired Magazine and I currently live in New York. Can we start with you kind of telling us the backstory to ACE? Uh, how did you come to write it and why did you feel that it was important to do so? Absolutely. I think the honest answer is that I came to write it because I realized that I was ACE and because there was a sense of annoyance, maybe frustration, that it had taken me so long to realize that I was ace. So mm-hmm. as I mentioned, I'm mostly a science and tech journalist. The, you know, Hopefully my next book will be about science and tech. So it's not as <laughs> if I always you know, wrote about sexuality or about relationships. But after a series of you know, relationships of my own in my early 20s, I came to realize that I was ace. And there was just so much in the ACE world and how ACE is thought about the world. And there was so much that I felt that the ACE lens really enriched my life. And it was just sad to me that it had, you know, a book hadn't been written about it. And at that point, because I've always been a journalist, because I had an agent, you know, it just seemed like maybe the right person at the right time. Right. I mean, why, why do you think this is one of the first books on the topic? If it's something that, is obviously not anything new, but it, your book is really one of the few books that I have found on the topic. Uh, why do you think that is? So I think that, you know, ace people have existed throughout history or people that mm-hmm. we today might call ace, 
you know, have existed through history, but the ACE movement itself um, has really only existed in the past, or the ACE move, the contemporary ACE movement has existed in the past 20 or so years. I think a lot of ACEs are young. And when you're young, you just have less, you have less power, you have less money, people pay less attention to you. There's also this idea that asexuality is very much tied to the internet. And I think that's mm-hmm. both good and bad. I think it's definitely true that the internet has helped ace people find each other and organize and recognize each other in the same way that's true for many other identities and other groups. At the same time, I think that when any identity or any group is deeply associated with the internet, a lot of people don't take it that seriously. And they right. think it's just fake or you know something that people are just... Um, making up because they want attention. And I think that that's part of the reason why asexuality, you know, first of all, has been invisible for a while, but even when it hasn't been invisible, hasn't been taken seriously. Um, Mm. And it hasn't been seen as worthy of, you know, attention and thought and, you know, deep engagement the way I think it deserves. Yeah, I mean, in in the book, you talk a lot about the, even like the difficulty of, you, not using the term, but how people usually think of that term when they do so at all. It's, it's you have an entire chapter like explanation via negativa, right, as you call it. And can you talk a bit about that? Because um, the, when I read that, um, what I thought of is actually autism because I'm autistic and it's something that I I never know how to explain what or who I am, right? Like because the only the only terms that I can use, and usually obviously the person asking me isn't autistic. Um, I I kind of I have to put myself in their shoes and try to imagine cer- certain things that we might have in common or certain things that that person asking me you know might find familiar. Essentially, I would be finding terms that don't really uh, matter to me, but in order to try and get a point across, if that makes sense. And I did get a sense uh, because at the end of the day, what mo- what most people think of about asexuality is just the lack of sexuality, right? It's just a it's something that one does not have and that's about it. Whereas in real life, it's like in reality, it's so much more complicated than that. Uh, you talk a lot about it being a spectrum, you talk about all of these things, but can you sort of walk us through those difficulties, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're exactly right. I think the trap is that ACEs, you know, to explain asexuality, we have to describe something we don't even experience. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of saying, you know, when you supposedly feel this, well, I don't feel that, but I'm not sure if I'm describing that right, because it's something I've never felt. It's very, very abstract and very, you know, I find it really philosophically interesting that people's experiences can be so different and we're trying to use language to grapple toward that. Mm. So many people have this very limited idea of what asexuality is that focuses on behavior. You know, it means you either don't have sex or you hate sex, but asexuality is really more about attraction. And I think, you know, I think the word asexual can be confusing. You know, people would say, you know, why, how can someone be asexual and still have sex and still enjoy sex? And that's where all the complexity comes in. And I think that's another reason why there hasn't been that much understanding is because in order to talk about the really interesting things that asexuality offers, you know, ways of looking at the world, of questioning relationships and thinking about consent, in order to get there, you still have to, you first have to do, do this long explanation of it's this, but it's not that, but it's not that. Mm-hmm. But some people are like this anyway. And that's kind of, you know, 
that that can be just really tricky. Yeah, I mean, you're okay. So I, I can only speak to my own experience, obviously, and in my experience. And the reason why I think there are some similarities, obviously, we're not talking about the same thing, but the similarities is just the like being a minority within a big world kind of thing. <laughs> that makes sense. But it, it's it's really like I I have to cater what I'm saying to a specific audience. Usually it's one on one. But even when I speak on the podcast, on this podcast, and I talk about autism, which I do from time to time, uh, I kind of assume that I'm not speaking to an autism, like an autistic majority audience. Right. And this is um, it undoubtedly colors how I or affects how even like it affects the words I use it affects like the my literal vocabulary and so this is the this aspect of language is really really interesting to me and at the beginning um so by the time people have listened to to this conversation I would have recorded this introduction which obviously would be at the beginning of this episode in which I sort of kind of give this intro in many ways like asexuality 101 and uh, if can you talk a bit about what what that's what's that like to even have to do that 101 right? like you already talked about it a bit but we can get into it a bit more if that's okay like does it ever get annoying does it get tiring to have to talk about asexuality to a mostly sexual world if that makes sense or allosexual world as we might say here yeah, I think about this a lot, and I'm trying to change the terms on which I talk mm-hmm. about asexuality. So, you know, before recording this, you and I mm-hmm. had corresponded a little bit, and I had told you, you know, one of my requests is that the first question is not, what is asexuality? Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because, you know, I did used to do interviews and podcasts, and the first question would be that, and I would answer And then I realized that when the first question is what is asexuality, that automatically makes it seem like I'm talking to an allosexual or non-asexual audience, Mm -hmm. but that was never my intention. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm ace, but I don't want to be the face of asexuality. I definitely don't speak for all aces. (laughs) And, you know, maybe most importantly, I've never want, I've always wanted to talk to other ace people. I do not want to talk only about other ace people, which is why after a while I started requesting, you know, you know, I love to talk about this. Of course, I'm happy to explain, but you know, the ace one on one question, I want the interviewer to be the one who who does that. Because I think it's also about holding, you know, the people that I'm talking to to maybe a higher level or or a higher mm-hmm. standard. I think if the goal is for for, you know, asexuality or almost anything to be widely understood, then at a certain point, I think I have to act as if it is and hope and trust that people will say, okay, maybe I don't quite understand, but I can go find articles about it or I can read her book or someone else's Mm -hmm. book. I think that in this weird way, I almost feel like the more I continue answering ACE 101 questions, the more I'm making it that we're never going to get past ACE 101. And that once I start saying, you know, the information is out there. We're going to start with 201. To me, that feels like a more comfortable mm-hmm. place um, in which it's taken for granted in the same way that, you know, maybe if you're going to a class, it's taken for granted you do the reading before the class. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And I did listen to some of the previous uh, podcasts because <laughs> I do my research. There is something that I found very interesting, which is, I mean, the subtitle of the book is what asexuality reveals about desire, society, and the meaning of sex. So there is also in the subtitle sort of an implication that, this book isn't just for aces, essentially. It's also, it might be for people who are questioning. It might be for people who, you know, aren't sure. It might be for just people who are curious. Of course, it's always good to be curious. But there are certain, there are elements, essentially, that uh, even for a non-ace audience, for an allo audience, we might say, 
um, which statistically is probably most listeners. I'm guessing. I really have no idea. I have no way of knowing. But um, it, it, like asexuality reveals a lot about the non-asexual world, <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, can you can you talk a bit about that? Because your book does get into that quite a bit. Absolutely. And you're right. You know, the book is not only for aces. It's definitely not only for aloes. It's for both. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think about it two ways. Asexuality is an identity, right? Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, you have the identity and then you have kind of the structural force. So asexuality is what I experience or, or you know, who I am, how I experience, you know, my sexuality. But there is this force that I talk about in the book called compulsory sexuality. Yeah. You know, the idea that all normal, healthy adult humans are sexual creatures and experience sexual attraction. It's not the idea that all adults have to have sex. It's the idea that you want to, even if you, you know, are not currently doing so for whatever reason. And compulsory sexuality is this force that's affecting um it's very complicated, but it affects so many people beyond aces. It's just the fact that, you know, aces are, you know, maybe a little bit more extreme in our experiences that it probably affects us most. Mm. But you don't have to be ace to be affected by compulsory sexuality. You know, so many men feel the need that, you know, if you're not a man, you're not a man, if you're not out there, mm-hmm. you know, having sex with a lot of having heterosexual sex, with a lot of women. Um, I think a lot of women sometimes feel, oh, you know, to be a good feminist, I have to really, you know, have casual sex. I can't be emotional. Um, otherwise, is that, you know, am I and you have a good sex life? Otherwise, how can I be a good feminist? Mm-hmm. There's so much pressure in relationships to feel like you have a great sex life. Otherwise, it's really sad. And all of those are things that I think so many people can feel and experience regardless of what their identity is. And I think that's part of what I hope to get across from the book. Um, I saw someone had written a very short review of it. And I thought, what they had said was really interesting is that they said that they thought that the title was a little bit misleading because yes, it is about asexuality, but it's also really just about variation in human desire and how all of that is okay. Mm. Um, And I I really love that because I think that is kind of a broader um, idea of what the book is. You know, of course I want to center aces in my own community, but I do think that thinking about all the ways that variation desire high or low or none can be okay, can be really fulfilling for and helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. And I really like that term compulsive sexuality because I feel it, it summarizes quite a bit. And I mean, at the beginning of your book, I should say for, for listeners who are not in the U S for example, you, you do say that like, you don't want to presume to speak for everyone. And obviously on, on this podcast, I, I always try and make that clear as well. That being said, I have found, quite a lot of similarities between the stuff that you that is mentioned about like the US and you know cu- um, cultural Christianity or, or, as it might be called or conservative Christianity or that that sort of thing in going in my own experience growing up in, in Lebanon in a also very conservative Christian environment I would say and but the reason I mentioned that is that there is this sense I mean I've had this sense uh, growing up and I didn't quite understand it going up, but this is a more recent realization, and your book has helped me actually to, uh, reach those conclusions, is that my my, my upbringing was both um, sex-obsessed, I would say, while at the same time guilt-tripping everyone about sex, essentially. It's like sex is supposed to be this thing that everyone ha- is supposed to want, and to be a good person, you're supposed to resist, resist this thing that everyone is supposed to want until, obviously, after you get married. 
and that uh, that contra- what well, apparent contradiction kind of makes a lot more sense and i'm not saying it's a good thing it's not a good thing obviously it's very unhealthy but there's sort of this internal logic that only makes sense if you sort of understand this entire thing as being uh compulsive sexuality as you call it what i was wondering is if we can talk a bit more about this uh compulsive sexuality as you call it because i remember in one of your previous uh interviews and i'm sorry i forgot which one you're talking a bit about the tension between uh for example between feminism and asexuality or at least common forms of feminism because there is of course this uh idea of sex positivity uh, which is often translated as you know your body is your own and obviously all of that is good but there's kind of an implicit assumption in many ways that this essentially means that you you still want it and what's wrong is that you're being shamed into not wanting it rather than you may want it you may not want it it should be completely up to you it should be completely what you feel comfortable with and that includes not wanting it does that make sense yeah we can start from that yeah absolutely and you know of course i always want to preface this by saying that i am a feminist and i value feminism so much and i know that this is this is Mm. not what all of feminism is so just want to make that clear but i do think that sex positive feminism or a certain strain of sex positive feminism has you know overcorrected because the idea like you said was that you know you know, women having sex and acting on their sexuality is bad. And so let's, you know, let's oppress them with these ideas of virginity and slut shaming and all of that. So that's bad. Of course it is. Totally agree. But then it overcorrects, you know, and now it kind of becomes the idea that to be a feminist, to be liberated means having a lot of sex. It means having, a, you know, having kinky sex it means being polyamorous. Basically everything that was not okay before sometimes can feel like it is now obligatory. And I think what ends up happening is that it's just the norms have shifted, but there's still norms, right? And I think that true Mm -hmm. liberation means that you can have kinky sex with as many partners and be polyamorous. And that is neither better nor worse than not having sex and and or not experiencing um sexual attraction at all so i think that there is that tension Um, it's not really between feminism and asexuality because of course there's a lot of ace feminists Mm. it's between almost this kind of sex normativity or not sex normativity it's not the right word because you know it's fine to have sex but a new kind of sexual pressure you know the old sexual Mm. pressure is don't have sex you know pretend you never have desire i think the new kind of sexual pressure is you know to be a vibrant woman you should be having a lot of sex and should be using men and you should be proud of your body and showing it off all the time. And whatever the norm is, there will be some people who are fine with it and there are some people who don't like it. And so it'd be so much better to just, you know, do away with the norms, you know, as long as Mm. there's consent and as long as it's mutual and as long as it's what you want, then it's fine. And of course, that's a huge order because it can take so long to figure out what you truly want and how to disentangle that from what you're supposed to want. But if we if we loosen up those norms, I think it would be easier for us to figure out you know, what is right for us because we would see a lot of different possibilities um, with none of them being stigmatized. Yeah, so, some, somehow I thought of the like the norms around beauty standards was before it was it was very much about body shaming and obviously fat shaming and all of that and now it's well i mean it's still a lot about that but there is more of a a trend uh, at least within you know uh, 
or something I see in commercials, for example, and that sort of thing, where, you know, you can be any body type, you can be whatever, but you can still buy our products at the end of the day. And there is a, there is very much a sense, and I can give an analogy, which again, I can speak a bit more to. When it comes to autism, I obviously prefer a society that is okay with autistic people rather than a society that isn't, which is still most of the world. But I would still prefer to be to live in a world where it just did not matter uh, rather than um, it's basically the difference between accepting and tolerating, right? Like for me, this is the difference. I feel like I'm being tolerated a lot and I would prefer being tolerated than not, than not being tolerated, obviously. Uh, but it's kind of like just choosing which is which is your poison, right? Because being accepted is very different. Being accepted in a society where or disabilities uh, more broadly and there is an entire debate as to whether autism is a disability, but whatever, we'll, we'll just go with it for now. Um, whether it's mental, whether it's physical, whether it's both, there is a difference between um, taking into account, oh, yeah, taking into account that we are all different and therefore designing a society, for example, in which designing or, you know, building a society together in which these differences are just what they are, you know, they enrich us, they are, they are what they are rather than having to actively make an effort all the time to have to justify who we are and why we're different and why that shouldn't matter rather than, you know rather than having to reassert ourselves all the time so again those are not good comparisons i can only just go with what i know and maybe we can find some common grounds to, to sort of explain these these um these differences if that makes sense yeah um no, I think those are really yeah, good examples. And I think they make a lot of sense. You know, you mentioned body positivity. And I remember at one point, you know, especially for women, there was this idea that you have to be very thin. And then it became the idea that you have to love your body, you know, every day, or at least that's what the pressure sounded like to me or felt like. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, I don't want to hate my body. But sometimes, you know, I don't want the pressure to love my body either. I want to mostly not think mm -hmm. about it. And I exactly. completely resonate with what you said about not having to justify your, yourself all day. Um, you know, sometimes people will say to me, you know, I think I might be ace, but I don't know if I like the label. I don't, I'm not a labeled person. And I will say, you know, mm -hmm. I completely understand that's fine. And I think the greater purpose, um, is to dismantle compulsory sexuality. Because once there's mm -hmm. no compulsory sexuality, in a sense, maybe it doesn't matter if you're ace. Maybe you can be allosexual, but you want to be celibate for whatever reason. And you can just say no and live your life and you never need to point to asexuality or point to you know, any other reason other than no. Um, like my, that's what, what matters to me is not that everyone uses the ace label because some people you know, for some people, it doesn't serve them. The idea is that nobody has to think about it again um, because they don't, it doesn't affect their life negatively. And if they want to be part of the ACE community, that's great. But again, it's about that force, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, since publishing your book, have you, have you received like feedback from people who, let's say, were questioning or who knew that they were ace but didn't know how to talk about it or maybe who who are allosexual but felt some kind of uh, relief in reading this book if that makes sense because i can think of someone who i know would be listening to, to this episode who uh is allosexual uh, as far as she knows uh this i'm 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 citing her here and she gave me permission to mention this uh, but she she read this book and kind of identified with a lot of what was written there even though that she didn't identify as ace in the end 
Yeah, I've received a lot of really interesting feedback. You know, there's aces who knew they were ace, and there's people who didn't know they were ace. But what's really interesting to me are people who kind of suspected maybe deep down that they were ace and felt afraid to read the book. You know, I actually mm. had a number of people say to me, you know, um, I don't want to read this because I'm afraid it's going to confirm that I'm ace and I don't want, I'm not ready to deal with that. And then I always say, you know, that's your journey. Um, of course, I'm not pressuring anyone to read the book. And then I've also had people who said, you know, I didn't want to read the book because I was nervous and anxious. And then I read it and it made me feel so much better. Because I think that if you suspect your ace or you know you're different in some way and you resist it, it's because you think that it's because you think that it's some kind of horrible sentence to be alone, to be different, to not be understood, to be stigmatized. And I try really hard in in the book, and honestly, I wish I'd done this more, to show that aces um, can have joyful lives, that they can have joyful lives both you know, in, in terms of, you know, still having relationships and having children, but also that they can move past that. Because oftentimes when people realize they're ace, the first thing people say will be, okay, you can still have a relationship. You can still have sex if you want to. You can still be monogamous. And I think that's important because oftentimes that's what people want and what they fear they can't have. But the next step beyond that is, you know, what are different ways of relating? is a monogamous romantic sexual relationship actually what you want you know is what you want an intentional community or a queer platonic queer platonic relationship and i've tried in the book to show there's other possibilities and i think that's what people are reacting to when they say i didn't want to be ace because i thought it meant being quote unquote normal but worse than normal and now i see that it's different and it also opens up some possibilities so yeah i think that's the kind of feedback that I find most interesting. Yeah, and I think it does say a lot, again, about the what counts as our norms in today's society. And it's safe to say that in many ways, uh, we're a bit more accepting when it comes to sexuality and to the diversity of experiences and that sort of thing, at least compared to a few decades ago. But there is still a there is still this expectation that even if someone doesn't tell you outright, uh, you have to be this or you have to be that, there's still a lot of internalized things. It, it's sometimes in the subtext, right? It doesn't have to be outright, you have to do this or you're bad if you don't do this. But it's sort of like the different expectations, the what is implicit in different conversations. And I, I, find, I find it very interesting that in the book you point out how there is a difference between women and men identifying as ace, like way more women, um, from what I understand, do so. And you say it's because of how men are usually socialized. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think women are usually socialized to almost try to behave as they're as if they're asexual. And so I think in that way, right. uh, you know, asexuality is not quite as much of a, of a challenge against female stereotypes. But men, I think the idea of what a man is, what a real man is, is so intimately bound up with sex and pursuit and aggression that, mm -hmm. you know, as I write in the book, I know ace men who, when they first realized they were ace, they questioned am I transgender? Like they, they question their gender because of the way that these two things are so, you know, intimately connected. I don't think right. that most, most of the time women to be a woman means that you're, you have to be out there having sex or that you have to be lusting after, you know, every person. But I do think that's true for 
you know, men. And I've said this before, but I do, you know, there are men that I know who could be described as ace. And I say Mm. that because, you know, I let people describe themselves. You know, I'm not going to force anyone, a label onto anyone. But these are people that I think their experiences line up with other ace men that I know. And they're aware of asexuality and they're aware of what it means. And I think they prefer to imagine they still reject the label. And I think they often prefer to think, oh, it's an erectile dysfunction problem or, oh, it's a, you know, it's some kind right. of health thing. Um, although we know that, you know, those are not the same. And I really do think that for at least some men, the idea that they have a disorder that can maybe be fixed with some kind of new drug or therapy or innovation that comes is in some ways more comforting than the idea that there's no disorder, but they're different. Um because in one, you're just, you're still a real man um, and you will be again, you know, once you find some kind of fix. In the other, it feels deeper, like it feels ontological. And I think that can be more threatening. Yeah. And I mean, again, it speaks a lot to expectations that we, you know, men have about what it means to be a man, about, uh, you know, masculinity, the, the very, very um, rigid definitions of masculinity, which is obviously, which are obviously very toxic. And at the same time, it also speaks to misconceptions that people have about asexuality, which, again, it's usually not thought of as a spectrum. It's just thought of as the absence of sexuality. And you have this great quote, uh, which I'm going to read if that's okay. Um, So it goes, uh, being repulsed by sex is a fairly obvious indication of the lack of sexual attraction. But the lack of sexual attraction can also be hidden by social performativity or wanting and having sex for emotional reasons. And because the different types of desire are bound together so tightly, it can be difficult to untangle the various trends, uh, end quote. So can you talk a bit more, explain that quote for those who don't know, who don't understand it, if that's okay. And can you talk a bit more about the the fact that it is a spectrum at the end of the day? We're not just talking about this whole, you know, explaining via negativa or defining via negativa, but we are talking about something that is in and of itself a spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. So the funny thing is the, the beginning of the quote says something like being repulsed by sex is a fairly obvious indication of the lack of sexual attraction. <laughs> and that's one thing that I just wanted to amend a little bit because I think maybe it's more mm. accurate as they can be because I think there are people who are sex repulsed and not ace. We'll set that aside for now, but just wanted to right. clarify that. Right. Um, but, you know, you know, what does it mean to be difficult to untangle the various strands. I'll just use myself as an example. So I'm not sex repulsed. When I was growing up, I, you know, before I'd ever had sex, when I was a teenager, I assumed that I one day would. I was excited about the prospect. I thought it was going to feel great. I had crushes on people. And, you know, even into my first couple of relationships, I was fine having sex. I didn't, we didn't have any sexual problems. I enjoyed it. And so the question is, you know, how can you be ace? And it's because I, I enjoyed it because I enjoyed it, you know, emotionally. And I did enjoy it maybe physically, but I never had that experience that many of my aloe friends say they had where it's like you meet someone and you just feel horny for them. Like I never think Mm. about sex involuntarily. You know, I may Mm. have sex, but I don't experience sexual attraction. So I don't know if that kind of helps explain it. But moving on a little bit to the spectrum, I've, I think nowadays, I think everything is a spectrum. And it, you know, it's not that some people are never experienced sexual attraction ever in their lives lifelong. In the same way that I don't think it's true that there is anyone who experiences sexual attraction 
all the time. You know, can, can you think of anyone who experiences sexual attraction 24-7? I feel like that would be a very difficult way to live, right? It would be very distracting. So, you know, that spectrum is the same. You know, some people do experience, who identify as ACE, do experience sexual attraction or they experience it very rarely or they experience it in a very kind of low level. Some people, of course, are sex repulsed and celibate and they do say they have a lifelong. Um, some people, you know, there's fluidity there too. Some people's um, sexual attraction can change throughout their life. And at certain points, maybe it's a little higher, maybe it's a little lower. And I think that's totally true for allosexuals as well. You know, so often, you know, people will say like, what does it feel like to be asexual? And then I will say, you know, just imagine someone like a stranger that you're not sexually you're not sexually interested in, that is pretty much what it feels like. I think all of us know what that experience is. Yeah, it's just always rather than from time to time, or at least most of the time rather than from time to time. Yeah. Um, And so it kind of brings me to to what I wanted to ask about, again, this question of language and the limitation of language in many ways. Like for me, language is just us trying to figure out the best approximation of what we actually mean, because it's almost, it's very difficult to, get our point 100% across without either missing something or being misunderstood, maybe, or being, you know, all of that. And there are debates, at least from what I've seen, I haven't engaged with them that much, really, but in doing research for this episode and reading your book and others as well, uh, I mean, stuff online as well. The the question, the, the term demisexuality is something that I asked a friend who I know is queer, for example, and uh, she said that she didn't know what it meant. And when she kind of looked it up, she didn't really believe that it, it's a thing. And I was wondering if we can talk a bit, and I'm not I'm not asking anyone to, I'm not asking to explain or justify it or, or prove its existence. Like that's none of my business. But why, why do you think, why do you think it confuses some people? And for those who don't know if that's okay, can you just say what it is for those who don't know? And why do you think it confuses? Why do you think there's a sort of a controversy maybe around that term? Yeah, absolutely. So demisexuality um, means, and, you know, I don't identify as demisexual, but this is, Mm -hmm. you know, the the widely accepted definition is that you don't experience sexual attraction until there is an emotional attachment. And Mm -hmm. I think people will say, oh, that's just, that's just everyone. But one person explained it to me really well, because it's not about, it's not about behavior, you know, like a demisexual person can sleep with someone on the first date that's fine. But the way that they described it was that, you know, I can go into a bar and I just won't feel sexually attracted to anyone there. So it's not about, you know, I prefer to have sex when there's an emotional attraction. It's about I actually Mm -hmm. cannot experience sexual attraction towards someone, regardless of whether I sleep with them or not, until there's an emotional connection there. And I think a lot of people would say that it seems um, that, you know, first of all, like that's everyone you know, that everyone feels like that. That's that's one thing. I think a lot of people, um, I think it also slots into this larger discussion about, you know, what is the role of labels? And that is something that is not unique to the ACE, you know, universe at all. But I think there's a lot of people who think, oh, like, do you need a label for everything? Like, are we just pathologizing normal human experience? And then a mm-hmm. lot of people on the other side will say something like, first of all, it's not pathologizing. It's just, you know, it's just describing. Um, mm. But also, I think many people find that if there's a word for something, it helps you learn more about it. You know, if you know mm-hmm. what demisexuality is, and you Google demisexuality, then you'll find a lot of communities, and then you'll find people. If you don't know what demisexuality is, and if you Google something like 
don't experience sexual attraction unless there's a romantic connection. You know, you're going to have all these weird Google results that are just not as efficient for connecting to the people that you want to be connected to. So I think, you know, I think people, everyone kind of decides for themselves what labels to use and not to use. You know, personally for me, there's a lot of labels that I think could describe me, but I feel I feel fine kind of the big tent label of ace. And I personally mm-hmm. don't need to use any other labels. But I think other folks, um, they find this validating and they find it useful. And I'm not I'm not convinced that I'm not convinced that it's a bad thing. Um, that there's more labels that, you know, people can use um to, to find each other. I think it's a, I think it's a good thing, but though I, again, you know, I think people decide which ones they might want to use. No, that makes sense. That's makes sense. And I feel like a lot of the, and this, this is just my opinion, obviously, but I feel like a lot of the reservations, let's put it that way, that some people might have aren't actually about the term, but maybe I think they're saying something else. Like, you know, you, you there isn't the stigmatization, um, for example, the the, person, the the friend I mentioned, and again, I have permission to mention this, um, her her problem or her issue or her reservation with, and it wasn't like a strong opinion or anything. At the end of the day, it's like whatever people can identify how they, however they want. But um, for her, it was like, you know, she's, she's a lesbian and she's faced specific problems because of it. And she, she doesn't feel like it makes sense for someone to use another term. But then we had a, a pretty interesting conversation, I think. And in the end, she sort of, so she she kind of agreed, I would say, or at least we found some kind of compromise or something. I'm not sure. But I think she did agree that, um, how would I say this? That the problem isn't the label. The problem is actually society. <laughs> like the problem is actually the fact that um, if it bothers you that someone else is using a label because that label isn't associated with oppression, uh, your, actual oppre- your actual problem is with the oppression that you faced rather than the label that that other person is using, if that makes sense. And this is something that I've kind of been, um, how would I say this? It is something I've kind of come to terms with as well, uh, as well with my own experiences. I have mentioned before, like I'm myself questioning, I'm not going to talk about it too much because I, I, yeah, I'm not quite at that stage yet. But when it comes to um, just being autistic, I just know that my issue isn't whether people know a lot about autism, for example. My issue isn't uh, with that. My issue is just them not knowing usually has negative repercussions on my life. It's it's pretty it's pretty straightforward in many ways. Um, and it, it, is, it is that. I guess I'm kind of um, circling back to this maybe a bit too much. I'm not sure. But there is a, there is a sense that when if someone reads this book, and I know and... I'm sorry for repeating this again, but I know this isn't a book about two non-ace people or two allo people or two broader societies. It's for everyone, ace and and allos as well and everyone and whatever. But I think it says a lot about society, about compulsive sexuality. Reading about asexuality says a lot about compulsive sexuality. And the examples I can give is you mentioned this show. I haven't seen any, I actually just saw bits of it because you, you had mentioned it. I hadn't heard of it before. It's called Naked Attraction. And it's this, uh, I think it's British. And it's, I'll let you explain it if that's okay, because I actually don't even know how to explain it. It's just, it's a very weird thing when I saw it. But yeah, so explain it first before I get into it. 
Yeah, it's a show that, you know, I've not watched in detail. I watched one day when I was at my friend's house and it's this dating show where someone, you know, um, is looking for a date and there's something like six people. I don't remember the exact thing. So, yeah. you know, there might be some liberties here, but they're completely naked and they're inside these pods. And then the, the first round, um, the kind of door lifts up and then I think you see up to the waist. So you, you see the genitals and the next mm -hmm. round you see, I think it's up to the neck. So you see the chest and then so on. And the idea is that the, the main contestant is evaluating these people and then they are eliminating folks based entirely on these physical attributes, which, you know, is a part of many dating shows, but you don't even get to mm -hmm. see their face. And so I kind of used it in the book as an example of, you know, trying again to help uh, allow people understand what it might like might be like to be ace because the day that I watched it you know I was with female friends who are allosexual but when you watch it it's just not an attractive show it's not sexy at all it's just it's just body parts it feels so clinical it feels so detached yeah. um, it does there's no eroticism there and I think that that that's why I use it because I thought that was kind of a funny way. You know, these people, that I, my friends, they do experience sexual attraction, but they're definitely not experiencing it toward any of these people on stage. Yeah. And what I found, what I found interesting about that, and maybe interesting is a bit too much, but what I found uh, revealing about that show is that it describes, I forgot the name of the television it's on, but it described as something, something TV after dark is what they add after. Uh, and sort of like the implications that these are, you know, it's everyone's deepest secrets and deepest desires. And because it's nighttime, obviously the, the, the association we make is that, or we usually make is that, you know, nighttime provides cover for our, you know, deepest desires and dirtiest desires. And it's like, it's taboo and therefore it can be liberating. And what's also sort of implied from all of that is that this is what night is like. Like night can't be on nighttime, you know, the, the after dark uh, concept. Like it's, it can't be just, oh, peaceful contemplation or just hanging out with friends or just doing anything else that's not sexual or not just sexual. The implication is that it's after dark, therefore it is sexual. And there is, again, this sense that I, you're right. I mean, it is a, it is a very ridiculous show, but the premise isn't that different from a lot of uh, dating shows. I'm not, I'm, I have nothing against dating, whatever people do, whatever they want, but there is again, this sense of this is what everyone wants it's not like this is just what we want it's the message out the message that's sort of portrayed from that i get at least the impression i get from watching these things um is that this is what everyone wants and so obviously if you don't want that there's something wrong with you and this is my issue this is the problem that i have i have not i don't care about dating per se some people like it some people don't like it that's fine i don't th these aren't the issues that i have and i have nothing against sex positive stuff i have nothing you know this isn't the issue either the issue is that not everyone identifies with all of this and if we lived in a society where it just didn't matter like it was totally fine if this was your thing if it wasn't your thing totally fine there's no social repercussions for not wanting that thing then i feel like those shows would be very different and so again, the the issue, the, the or let's put it this way, what I find very valuable in this book, other than understanding it for what it is and understanding those experiences for what they are and learning about different experiences and that sort of thing, and especially understanding asexuality as a spectrum, I feel like this is one of the main contributions of the book. I also found it very valuable 
in understanding just wider society. It's it's just that thing where you, you're reading about something that you think is very specific, but it's actually generalized, if that makes sense. The, the things that, of course, the, the experiences are specific and the experiences are those individuals' experiences, but those individuals' experiences are happening in the context of a wider society. And it's that wider society that's actually being examined uh, that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, and there's so much to examine. You know, I think one of the one of the ideas of the Naked Attraction show, which I do think is at least a little bit tongue in cheek, but one of the kind of embedded ideas is that the most titillating thing, maybe in some ways the most intimate thing, is seeing someone naked. Yeah. But I mean, that's something to examine too, because I know many people who will say that you know holding hands with someone feels more intimate than having sex with them, or that they don't care about nudity. You know, mm-hmm. that's fine, but they're not going to talk about their relationship with their sister because you know there's so many different kinds of intimacy and of course sex can be a form of intimacy but sometimes especially when it comes to romantic relationships there's this idea that it's lesser than or it's not intimate if there's not sexuality involved and so yeah again you know these are things that aces think about a lot for kind of obvious reasons but these are things that i think many people would benefit from thinking too you know i think many aces um, both do not want to assimilate and are unable to assimilate into these norms. But I also think that there's plenty of people who can follow these norms, but maybe they don't actually want to. And yeah. they should think about whether they want to and whether something else is possible. Yeah. And so kind of that brings me to the, to the question I had about the representation. You know, that's, uh, I know it's a hot topic and a lot of people have different opinions on it, but like, seeing asexuals on screen on screen sorry identified as asexual and just having kind of normal roles and so on i can see how that can help um well especially younger folks but maybe not just um sort of feel more comfortable with who they are and as far as i can tell anyway i can only think of two examples in which there's there's an asexual character i'm sure there's more than two i mean but i can only think of two as of now there's kind of an asexual character and that character is just seen as a normal character like any other characters. And I can think of like Todd Chavez and, and uh, Bojack Horseman. And I can think of, she's not a main character, but she's one of the characters in Sex Education, which I found quite interesting because obviously in that show, it's all about sex, sex education, all of that, sexual orientation, all of that. But there are at least one or maybe two characters that are that end up going to this uh, sex therapist and she identifies them as, or identifies one of them anyway, as asexual. And it's actually seen as this big revelation. And she's very happy with that, uh, uh, with that label. And it's very liberating. And I found that very refreshing because I'm not used to it. I'm just not used to, um, again, at best, maybe we, we see these days some positive, uh, like, oh, it's okay to be homosexual. It's okay to be bisexual as it is okay to be heterosexual everything's fine, you know, etc. Oh, of course, it, it's it's normal, okay, slash, okay, to be cis, it's normal, slash, okay, to be trans, and so on. And all of that is, again, good. But I don't, I haven't seen as many, maybe, and I might be looking in the wrong places, um, as many just positive de- 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 depiction of asexuality that are just there, like, you know, oh, I am ace, end of story, like, this is just my life, and I'm, I'm this person, it's not, the only thing I identify myself with, I'm also, you know, an artist, I'm also a whatever and et cetera, et cetera. So how do you sort of think about this question of representation? I think you're right. First of all, you know, there's not a lot. And I think that, you know, 
I haven't seen Sex Education, but I have seen BoJack Horseman. Mm-hmm. And I know that so many people who watch BoJack Horseman realize they were ace from those episodes. And I think <laughs> that's great. But I think there's so much more that can be done. Yeah. You know, because I, I said, you know, a lot of people who identify as ace today are on the younger side, which is great. But I know there's a lot of people who are older and who um, could or would identify as ace, right. um, but they don't see older ace characters. And to a certain extent, I want the ace storylines to go beyond the ace revelation, mm-hmm. right? Because there's so many things about asexuality that are not just, oh, I realize this thing exists. Um, you know, I think that a lot of queer media has, you know, thankfully moved beyond, oh, I realized you know, it's okay to be to be queer. And there's so many questions to explore that are so meaty. You know, what does it mean to be in a relationship while you're ace? And what does that look like? What does it mean to be ace and want to have children? And how, and you know, what are your options? Um, what about aging and being older or divorcing and, and being ace? Like, these are the stories that we're not really seeing that are out there because my guess is there's just not a lot of ace folks writing television shows. Statistically, I think that is the case. Mm-hmm. And so there's still this you know, there's still this stuckness in which the innovation is to introduce something. And that's the same tension that we talked about a little bit earlier, where this is a topic that still needs introducing, right? It's not wrong that um, people think it is still kind of new to be doing that, but how do we how can we both acknowledge that there's a lot to catch up on and at the same time start to try to tell new stories? That's something that I think about a lot. Yeah, and actually I was wondering uh one more thing before we get into the book section the the i've seen at, at least from what i understand that there's a complicated relationship uh between the ace community and the wider like lgbtq plus community and again it goes back to that plus right either we we might hear like lgbtqia and some people or maybe a lot of people think that the a means ally which is a way of actually erasing asexuals but so I'm mentioning this because I've seen it in a lot of uh, online forums on Twitter elsewhere that obviously ace, uh, aces can be com- can be very uncomfortable with this. What do you sort of what are your thoughts on on the relationship between aces and and the, and the queer community? Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think aces are part of the queer community. Mm-hmm. Um, aces are not heterosexual. You know, even if you're heteroromantic, you're not heterosexual, mm-hmm. and because you know, and therefore we don't fall into those, you know, compulsory sexuality norms. We just didn't have, for a long time, I don't think we had quite the language to elucidate that. So I do think aces are queer. I, at the same time, I think, you know, it's just different experiences. And I think that there can be a fear and a sense of scarcity, you know, because it is, you know, let's say you are ace, um, and you're a heteromantic ace, you are simply not going to have um, some of the difficulties that you might if you were, you know, lesbian and walking down the street with your female partner. Um, but you have different struggles, which is that, you know, people don't really understand, you know, what your sexuality is, and you have to spend so much more time explaining it. It's just very different. And I think that sometimes there can be a sense of scarcity of, you know, how am I going to get attention to this? But truly, I think, Every ace person I've talked to has always said, you know, we acknowledge that that the struggles are different and we want to be in solidarity. It's not about, you know, aces. It's harder to be ace than it is to be everything else. It's just different, just as it's different with any of the other experiences in um, 
the queer umbrella. Mm -hmm. So I do think, you know, to be honest, I think there's always been a bit of tension there. There are folks who are queer who don't think aces, who don't think aces are queer. I think aces are, and I think aces bring, you know, like queer, so many things about sexuality and about relationships. And I just want everyone to, you know, to understand that having that bigger tent can only be a good thing for fighting for, you know, the rights that I think many of us want. And for ACEs, I don't think those rights are necessarily legal rights. You know, in the same way that might have been the case for gay marriage, I think those are, you know, it's it's cultural shifts mm-hmm. that I think mm-hmm. will will help many people who are queer and eventually everyone. Yeah, and again, I guess that that conversation needs to happen. And I mean, it is happening and hopefully it continues to happen. And it highlights, again, the what I mentioned about like the the some people's reservation with the term demisexuality i feel like it's sort of a bit misplaced i guess it would be my my like my take on it like one shouldn't have a an issue with the term itself but rather with the fact that there are these being lgbtqia etc are is difficult and the problem is the fact that it is difficult the problem is that we still live in a heteronormative world we still live in a patriarchal world we still live into a, a you know a highly oppressed um uh, society societies i should say with different forms of domination obviously not just the ones i just mentioned but more than that racial class etc etc um and this is what we should be focusing on and i feel like if someone is comfortable using a term and maybe i'm just repeating myself but if they're comfortable comfortable using that term whatever my opinion may be is just not as as important as making sure that there are no social repercussions to using that term or to identifying in a certain way and so yeah that's sort of what i w- i would say to that i guess i'm just repeating myself yeah i i completely agree you know the term doesn't have to be one that you use but i do think you know i think about this a little bit in the way that Um, disability advocates talk about accessibility, you know, like the idea is that, you know, if there's curb cuts or ramps, then it's not, it doesn't only help disabled people. It helps people like women who are, have strollers or old people, you know, who have mobility issues. And I do think that I do, you know, not to, you know, steal that analogy, but I think it's such a wise one. And that's so much of what we're fighting, you know, it'll help ACEs, but it'll help other folks too. It'll help queer folks, but it'll eventually help, you know, Straight folks too. Yeah, I mean, for for one, the fact that as you mentioned, way more women identify as ace than men. I mean, that says a lot in and of itself. It doesn't mean that there are statistically more women ace than men ace. I mean, I have no idea, but it does definitely say that a lot of men who might be ace have these other feel at least some some kind of uh, social norms to follow and this is what needs to be tackled the ta- it's like the, in the same mm-hmm. way that feminism is obviously not just good for women but it's also good for men and it's it, because it re-questions why do we have these patriarchal norms in the first place so i suppose that's a good way of, of wrapping this and i guess what i wanted to to ask as i always do at the end of this podcast is what are three books that you would recommend to listeners and why those three Yeah. um, Before I go into that, I just wanted to add on to what you said is that I completely agree. And, you know, at the very end of my book, I said something like, you know, a world that is welcoming to aces is is a world that is not compatible with transphobia or racism or, you know, contractual notions of consent. So I just want to say I completely agree with you is that, you know, it's it's not like the these struggles and these fights are bound together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So for my three recs, um, one book is a book that I 
read while doing research for um, for ACE. And it's an academic book, but it talks a lot about the role about, you know, relationships and marriage and how we think about, you know, what care is. And the book is called Minimizing Marriage, Marriage, Morality and the Law by Elizabeth Brake, who is a philosopher. And then my two other books are ones that actually aren't out yet, but I'm very excited about them. Um, so one is called Refusing Compulsory Sexuality, A Black Asexual Lens on Our Sex-Obsessed Culture by Sharonda J. Brown. And they are so smart and I'm very excited for this book. And I think this is out in uh, September. And the last one is the tentative titles More Than Friends by Raina Cohen. That's R-H-A-I-N-A Cohen. And she's not ace or a romantic, but she's writing this book about platonic partners and what it means to have friendship at the center of your life rather than romance and what it means from many different angles. And yeah, I'm just very excited for those books to come out. Amazing. I'll definitely check the, all three of them. Um, Angela Chen, thanks a lot for, for this chat. Thanks for, thank you for entertaining me, even though I, I was rambling a lot, but thanks a lot for that. This, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayoub. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.